action. Welcome to Torn Stops with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. Happy anniversary, Joshua! Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween and happy, happy anniversary. anniversary. It's been four years since we started this podcast, and it feels like we've been doing it four years. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's been four years. I know, it's flown by. I mean, two years of that has been pretty much living in our houses yeah 18 months of that has been we've survived been doing it i mean we haven't done the pod in the same room together for a long time i think it was the quentin tarantino season that's the last time we were recording in my kitchen i think it was the first couple of episodes of the comic book series oh yeah no you're right that was in my old kitchen yeah. before i moved house yeah and you've been in the new place for about 18 months yeah yeah, you moved it just at the start of the Panny D. Sure did. And my landlord was like, get out. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, okay, I'll Bye. find a new place to live. Thank you. Udo scared. <laughs> Joshua unhappy. <laughs> landlord rich. <laughs> we are going to continue our celebration of 21st century horror as we move on to... A Netflix trilogy event. Fear Street, 1994, 1978 and 1666. Joshua. A killer is stalking Shadyside, Ohio. When a teen wearing a skull mask goes on the rampage at the mall, Dina, played by Kiana Madeira, finds herself thrust into a hunt for the culprit with ex-girlfriend Sam, Olivia Scott Welch and their friends. With her brother Josh, Benjamin Flores Jr. claiming the deaths are the cause of a witch's curse, Dina and her friends are confronted with the history of Sarah Fear, that's F-I-E-R, the witch who could be behind all the bad stuff happening in Shadyside. And that's just the first film. Part 2, 1978, transports us back to Camp Nightwing, where an axe-wielding maniac goes on a killing spree while part three goes all the way back to 1666, where we learn the true story of Sarah Fear. Robert. This was basically made for you. <laughs> it really was. It really was. I mean, I didn't read the Fear Street books as a teenager because they just weren't available in the UK. We had Point Horror, um, which we've chatted with, uh, about with Shelley Toy in our mm -hmm. was it Final Destination episode. Or Happy Death Day? Yeah, Final Destination and Happy Death Day, she was on. Yeah, so we had Point Horror, America had Fear Street, which was a series of books written by R.L. Stein. Um, I think he'd written 60 plus by the time, you know, the 90s sort of um, ended. But he's, he right, was a hold really on there a second. Author. He didn't write all of them. He's got to be a ghostwriter <laughs> in the real sense, not you know spooky spooky ghostwriter <laughs> yeah. i think he did end up using a ghostwriter for some of the spin-offs possibly 59 of the... them <laughs> yeah i know but i think he did write pretty much all of them like he was really prolific and they're not long books they're they're like 30 to forty thousand words you're like 120 pages um, it's a pamphlet yeah exactly like a scary scary but, pamphlet but even 30 to forty thousand words is long 
and you can't just crack that out. Maybe he does what James Patterson does. James Patterson seems to write a new book with someone. He's always collaborating. Yeah. So maybe he's more of a an overseer to the James Patterson universe. Maybe, maybe Einstein I, I, is the same way. I wonder if his books were more kind of title-led. So maybe the publisher would say, we want to do a book where the title is the wrong number. And then he would kind of come up with what the plot for that would be. And I think that he's very much somebody who does plot. So he would actually outline his entire plot. um, And then sort of that meant he could just write the book really quickly because it's just about filling in the prose, basically. So maybe he's got a format and... He mm-hmm. knows he's got to get from A, B, C to D. Yeah. So the temple there, to he D. just fills in the fluff. Yeah, exactly. I I personally, um, I, I read the Point Horror books. I listened to the Point Horror cassettes, mm. the audio books, and they were like full-on radio productions with sounds and, yeah, so and music. Great. They were really cool, and they came on a big, they came on like four cassettes and a big thick, cassette case that sort of mm-hmm. snapped closed and it had really cool artwork goosebumps i i never read goosebumps i was i think i was either a little bit too old by then or i'd moved on to darker things like watching Same. stephen king's it or yeah. preacher comics or hit goosebumps comics. was definitely the sort of young young adult i think now they would call it middle grade which is sort of young teenagers like 13 maybe and younger so like more like kids kind of books i think and i I was the same i i loved point horror but that was very much a launching pad for like christopher pike and stephen king and james herbert as well i think you know i didn't go backwards to to goosebumps i just i didn't even look at them i don't think and i'd never even heard of fear street until this no i think i only really found fear street on instagram because a lot of american instagrammers post about it all the post about fear street all the time and um I was always like, well, I wonder why it wasn't. I wonder why it wasn't published over here. I know it's really weird. It's because like point horror wasn't a thing in America. They just had point, and so a lot of the point horror covers use the American artwork. But it was a an edit, a scholastic editor in the UK who came up with this sort of umbrella point horror term. Um, so I guess the Americans already had Fear Street. They didn't need point horror as well. Did you watch this? when it first hit netflix i have watched this entire trilogy three times this year uh i was basically lucky enough to be commissioned by sfx magazine to to interview lee janiak who's the director of all three films mm-hmm. and i think i interviewed her in uh when was it may may or june and so i interviewed her and then i was given screeners <laughs> early early screeners for the first two films which were actually incomplete the the sfx work wasn't quite finished on them so i watched them then then i watched them again for review purposes for radio times and then i've watched them again for this podcast so i feel like i know these films absolutely inside out back to front upside down guts and all <laughs> like yeah does it hold up for you does it hold up to repeat viewing it does hold up and actually i think that the, the things that i maybe took issue with i still do and the things that i love i still love and actually love more um, and actually i think watching them sort of back to back for this for this podcast it really the emotional arc of the of the trilogy i think really works really well um you know, by by the final scenes, I just got goosebumps thinking about it. Goosebumps. 
Um, Goosebumps, R.L. Stein, trademark. <laughs> by the time you get to the scene of Sam and Dina in the wood and they are carving Seraphia's mark into the stone, you feel like you've been on this really epic journey with them and um, you feel for Sarah. You know, you've, you see Sarah... Um, in the first two films very much as a kind of a, an invisible antagonist or maybe not invisible because she does kind of flash into um interview like screaming most of the time for the first two films but by the third film but that's f- a vision in a character's head right yeah so you, you kind of feel like you've been on the journey with her as well and i actually find them really emotional by the end how about you so this is the second time i've watched it all i watched it when it first came out because Mm. I like stuff that is set in, you know, Salem times and 1666 is not that far removed from Salem. Only a a number of like, what, four years? Yeah, Salem was 1692. All right, so 30 years. Nothing. Double the life expectancy of people in that time. Just our lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Um, yeah. I didn't enjoy 1994. At all. Well, the first time round, I didn't. I found it really boring and I was on a shoot and I said to my mate, I'm watching this new horror thing and I'm really struggling through the first film and it's, it's the first in the trilogy. And he goes, then stop watching it. And I said, but I want to get to the third one because it's set in 1666 and it's got witches and shit. So I had to mm-hmm. really force myself through 1994. Really liked 1978. That's funny because you hate slasher films. You're not a slasher fan. No, I'm not. Like your idea of hell is watching Friday the 13th on repeat. Yeah. And and if you watch all 13 Friday the 13th films, you are basically just watching the same film over and over again. <laughs> just sometimes Which it's we set... did in our very first Halloween special. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's set in the camp. Sometimes it's set in a, in a town. Sometimes it's set in space. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's in sometimes space. Sometimes it's in space. Um, but yeah, I did. I really did enjoy that second one because it's not just a slasher film. And in fact, I wouldn't even call mm. it a slasher film because it, it's... I mean, it's, it's set in a Friday the 13th-ish environment. It's clearly riffing on all of that. But it's not like people are being killed by some unknown force we know who it is it's almost like the origin story of tommy right it's tommy's origin story but then it builds up nick good as being good and Mm -hmm. so good with an e so fit (laughs) he was ripped his arms were ridiculously ripped yes and they gave him a t-shirt four sizes too small (laughs) they really did if i did that people would go Oh, that guy's fat. <laughs> Unforgiving is the word, I think. That Unforgiving, kind of Unforgiving, yes. Unless you've got the body of a god. Or Nick Good in 1978. Yeah. Lovely yeah. Jewish boy. Ted Sutherland. But I did. I did enjoy 78 and I did enjoy 1666. 1994, I didn't know what it wanted to be. It clear, I mean, clearly that opening sequence is a rip-off. Not a homage, a rip-off of the Drew Barrymore cold open for Scream. But Scream was 1996. Fear Street 1994 should have been Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I was going to mention this because I found it really strange that they did set it in 1994. It just seemed more like it should have been 1996. Yeah. But like, would that have been too on the nose maybe? You know, it seems like the tight the titles for the first two films are almost two years out for the films that are actually. They are, yes, because Friday the Thirteenth, the first one was nineteen eighty, 
and Fear Street yeah. Part Two was 1978. So what are they? Are they? Are they referencing something from 1668? <laughs> Maybe. What film came out then? <laughs> A shadow thing on the wall. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's funny. I wonder if they were just kind of trying to be their own predecessor. So the the kind of the reason they set the first one in ninety four is so that they could be they could predate Scream. And the reason they set nineteen seventy eight in that year was to predate Friday the Thirteenth. Mm. It's kind of like a fun little maybe those films are actually inspired by us kind of thing. And I didn't actually hate the opening to the to nineteen ninety four, even though you, you called it a rip off. I, I think it is an homage. Um, it definitely borrows imagery. You know, borrows the shot of. It's like they use the same storyboard. <laughs> well, that, but that's okay because I think that it's it's so embedded in that genre mm. that I kind of don't mind that it did that. And I think that if it had done that throughout the entire film, that's when it would have been a problem. Yeah. But the reason I really like 1994, um, it does have faults. But the reason I really like it is that it does do something different and it does something different quite quickly. Um, You know, it has that opening scream kill, which is kind of almost like telling, telling the nineties horror fans, you know, you're in safe hands kind of thing. And, you know, it's fine. We know our genre and we know what we're doing. And then within sort of 20, 25 minutes, suddenly Sam is in the woods, uh, you know, crawled out of the car crash her, she bleeds onto this moss and then she has a, scre- a vision of like a screaming woman. And um, that's when it starts to peel off into doing its own thing. Yes. And it does that for the rest of the film. And I think that's why it works, basically. The rest of the film, do you think it feels like 1994? It's trying really hard to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the out the, the clothes are very 94. I love Dina's sort of military out outlet um jacket that she has on i love the the really purpley pink kind of i guess it's fuchsia jacket that julia wears it's like it's very um courtney cox in screen uh-huh. i mean she was yellow but you know similar vibe maybe visually it's just that little bit too slick it's just a little bit too filtered to actually be genuine 90s it feels a bit too stranger things to fit maybe the the true 90s slasher look i think the look is definitely too slick i think it would have been really cool if they had shot it to look like the 90s because the 90s has a particular look the 70s they could have shot it on 16 millimeter and then i guess 1666 could have just been a flick book on parchment paper (laughs) but with 1994 i felt that the characters were too accepting of a lesbian relationship and also of a character who is seemingly jumping over the barriers of of what is seemingly acceptable attire for men. You know, the Simon character has his nails painted, he's wearing a girl's cardigan at the end of the mm. film. But isn't he like a club kid? He's kind of verging on the club kid look, isn't he? No. I don't, he's got those bright orange I don't think, trousers. I don't think he's a club kid. I think he's just high school nerd. I think, it's, I think it's so amazing that the film has two lesbian protagonists. And mm. the, the storyline is not connected to their sexuality. It just so happens that they are lesbians. 
and one of them or one of them mm. is bi whatever maybe pan right and one of them has a gender neutral name and there's a whole there's a whole mm. you know reveal about that that's brilliant. brilliant they did that so well because the shot of dina looking at sam and the guy mm. it's it's set up so that you think she's kind of pining over this exactly. guy and then actually sam is a girl it's so well yeah, done it's incredibly well done but i just think if you want to sell 1994 I don't know if that is a realistic depiction of 1994, but it's small fry. I would rather, I would mm. rather they do what they did and have this amazing lesbian couple and this amazing, um, although stereotypically horror film obnoxious geeky guy. I'd rather they have all that mm. because imagine being some burgeoning little queer kid who's not yet out, stumbling onto Netflix and finding this awesome yeah horror we never had yeah i know i i think well the co-writer um phil grazi grazidai i'm terrible at names he co-wrote it with lee janiak and i I believe that he is he identifies as gay Mm. and so i think that he was sort of instrumental in maybe sort of like connecting with the emotional truth of being in a gay relationship and in the 90s and i think that I do kind of agree that it, the acceptance maybe is a bit implausible, but at the same time, they're all kind of outcasts and weirdos. Like, we are the weirdos, mister. Mm. You know, like all of Dina's friends, one's a drug pusher. The other one is <laughs> sort of like a, a rebel without a cause. And he, he like got his, he I think he sold drugs to his brother who overdosed as well and lived, um, but did that too. And so they're all kind of, and like and her brother Josh is this uber nerd who lives in the basement, basically playing computer games and chatting on AOL chat. And so I think that if anybody's going to accept somebody in a same-sex relationship, it's going to be people on the already on the fringes of school society. And you don't really see that many other characters reacting to their sexuality. I know, like in the finale, when the when um, Sheriff Good confronts dina he does call her a dyke Mm. and so that prejudice clearly does exist and you know sam's mother is very prejudiced but you don't necessarily get to see many characters who would have held those prejudices um, because it's so focused on our core group so it's not it's not kind of getting distracted by any of the prejudice stuff it's just trying to tell, tell its story i think as as a character choice that's great it's great for nick mm to be able to say that because it just reaffirms that he's not the good guy that he's been made out to be Mm. the whole of 1978 he was made out to be the savior he he Mm. you know he he basically saved ziggy yeah and i love the the shots that we get although the kind of like the reminder that we get in 1666 where you see all of his dialogue with fresh eyes um you know when he says to ziggy i'm not going to let you die and you in the moment you're like oh that's so sweet he's going to save her and then actually it means i've summoned this thing and i've decided that you get to live and there's all these little and he does it with martin the um the guy that he that good keeps arresting for sort of like misdemeanors and stuff that martin wasn't responsible for um it's just really clever the way they did that they did it so so well on this second watch one of the first shots literally is nick good shooting um the 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 skull face killer Mm. and then the camera sort of cuts to a wide shot 
and it sort of pans up a little to show this tree in the middle of the shopping center and the first time you watch mm. it like right you don't even remember that shot but on second shot significant it's so significant because it's all yeah. gonna loop round to this bloody tree yeah which is somehow sort of i wonder if it's one of those you know how you we have like um what are those buildings called that we are like what are they called when we have a building over here that's registered that you can't change it oh grade two listed grade two listed building i feel like the tree is a grade two listed tree where although do you think do you think that it's the good family who preserved that tree over time oh 100 percent. it's a it's part of the the heritage it's a heritage piece it's a heritage of the the town and seemingly nick good and the good mm. family need this legend of sarah fear to 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 hold their power over the town so the tree is so ingrained mm. in that legend that of course if a shopping mall was going to be built on the site the tree has to remain but it's so 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 strange mm. that the shopping mall the ground floor level is the exact same level as the ground because <laughs> usually if you yeah. go onto a ground floor level of a shopping center it's usually like you enter on the first floor yeah it's um yeah. it doesn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> you know and the fact that I, I love it like i love the repeated imagery i love that um you know when dina mm -hmm. has to crawl down into that hole in the mall's floor to like defeat the monster that's the same hole yeah. that sarah fear busted out of in order to escape good the first time i love that that all exists it does sort of stretch plausibility quite a lot but I, I just love it on a on a visual and sort of a, a thematic level. So I kind of, I'm okay with it. Well, from an architectural point, it doesn't make any sense because where have they built the foundation for the shopping <laughs> centre? <laughs> yeah, and that hand has not moved from under the tree think... in 300 <laughs> you... years. <clears throat> You'd think mid-mall shopping, some kid would have like run away from its parents and started digging in the fucking ground. and like, Mom, I found a hand! And then has some weird fucking visions and starts bleeding everywhere. <laughs> and also just the fact that if you're going to um, build a building of that size, you really need to have solid foundations. And so they would have yeah. uncovered that cave underneath the ground pretty early on in their construction. Unless Sheriff Good's sort of father or grandfather was there. Um, <laughs> Don't look at the cave. Like going, look over there, look over there. And sort of distracting. There's no cave here. <laughs> <laughs> don't look at the cave what cave you're fired <laughs> and also how far did they crawl in order to end up in the sunnyvale 40 mile house belonging to sheriff good because it seems like yeah it seems like quite a long way <laughs> for them to crawl thinking, out we're not under the mall anymore where are we going are we gonna need to get an uber back but it's fine i i kind of i love it you just go with it it's just i mean that. if you can believe the um, there's yeah. monsters and ghouls. You kind of just go, right, well, there's a cave. And yeah, they crawled, they crawled 40 miles to a new house. And the foundations and the tree is there. And of course, the tree is always there. Yeah. And of course, the tree hasn't, hasn't died and withered because it's been denied natural sunlight for 15, 16 years. One thing that kept popping into my head 
Is this film about segregation and wrongful convictions? Um, well, kind of, I guess. Because, well, Martin clearly is, is somebody who is being taken for such a ride by the police. And everything, you know, all this sort of bad behaviour, a lot of the bad behaviour is pinned on him. And then um, when, at the end of the of 1994, the authorities tried to pin all of the deaths on yeah. the two junkies, in inverted commas. Um, and they're basically, yeah, they're basically trying to make shady side into shitty side and sort of like use it as the, the dumping ground of their sort of area in order for Sunnyvale mm. to sort of prosper. So, yeah, it, I guess in that sense, it is about segregation. And when you see the Sunnyvalers, are they all just sort of like white privileged people? Whereas Shadyside is is very diverse, multicultural. Um, you know, there's a very clear contrast between even just their houses. Like when you when you're on the bus with Dina in the, you know, the beginning of the film, and they transition into Sunnyvale, it's all these gorgeous, amazing, almost Nightmare mm. on Elm Street style houses with pillars and like soft glowing lamps and bushes and shrubbery and all this kind of stuff. There's definitely a there's definitely a separation between yeah, exactly. the white kids and the black kids or the kids of colour. And I wonder yeah. is that something that is handed down through the good family from the Salem times when realistically there were no black people except slaves? Yeah, it's almost like they it's inherited um prejudice. You know, and it's it's sort of it always seems to be the men. You know, when you when you see who Solomon, the bad guy in in 1666, when you see him passing this sort of um, mm. pact with the devil down, it's always through the sons. Yeah, and that's that's what I think is one of the most successful things about the franchise as a whole is that. It's all started by a love affair between two women and the prejudiced reactions to that. Um, and it's almost like, okay, this is my question. <laughs> In response to your question, do you think that the franchise is celebrating our generation? So you, yours, you're a my generation, sort of like the, the millennials. If it is, it's the late millennials, the ones who are on the cusp of being Generation Z. Because... Like I said, you know, the 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 acceptance of the lesbians and the the almost gender non-binary kid in 1994 is definitely more geared towards maybe the intended audience of people who are not pushing 40 like you and I, but are actually in their late teens, early 20s mm. and are, you know, fans of Greta Thunberg now. It's just... It's yeah. just this strange mix of an IP that is favoured and loved by people our age, but maybe being aimed at people who are not our age. So it, it's weird. It's got this this two two mm. groups being pulled towards it. It's been set in our childhood, but with the attitudes of today, which is not such a bad thing because this is not a documentary. Mm. Yeah, it's just interesting because... The kids in in 1994, 
they aren't that you know so in ni- 1994 i would have been 11 so they're five years five or six uh-huh. years older yeah. than we would have been in 94 but it's almost like they if they had kids then they would be having generation yeah. iphone or whatever it is um and so it's almost like they are actually the generation that has the power for change. You know, they they can raise the next generation of um of sort of kids who aren't who aren't prejudiced and bigoted and racist and homophobic and um you know I was thinking what is why is it that Dina is the one who's able to to end this? when nobody else has even even she says it she she says in the end of, the, of 1666 no one has ever yeah. been able to break this but we're gonna fucking do it and it's it's almost like the world the town has been waiting for somebody like dina who is empowered um non-caucasian non-het um waiting for her to come along because she actually does have the power to change this because actually good is from the old world He's not relevant anymore. And what he's doing is destroying the future. Um, so, yeah, I just find it interesting. That's the generation that has the power to change. Ziggy obviously tried to stop it, but this can has sort of resolved herself that, no, this is, it's not savable. We can't, you know, break the curse. I don't know how to break the curse. And she is a child of the boomers. So she is generation X and so is Nick. But Nick is almost outside of that because he's part of this devilish pack. So it's almost like he, even though he is generation X, he's actually a child of the Salem times. It's almost like that has jumped and it's always going Mm. to be in him. And if Ziggy can't do it, then it has to be the next generation. So it is the millennials that have have saved, but it's the millennials with mm. the attitudes of Generation Z. It is this big mm-hmm. mix yeah. of, of generations. And maybe Fear Street sort of defies all generational ideas because, you know, Ziggy, even in, in, in you know, in 1978, Ziggy does seem to be outside of everyone's little boxes she's not like her sister who is like the typical preppy going to college polo shirt doesn't swear you know won't let won't let tommy even touch her bum yeah cindy yeah she's called cindy Um, it's brilliant cindy cindy um (laughs) i do wonder if that was a slight kind of scream (laughs) nod actually like like Sydney, but she's called but Cindy. even Ziggy is outside <laughs> of that little you know what people would expect of her she has got a bit of a masculine aggressive energy to her um you know it, it's unfortunate that mm-hmm. that actress is basically playing a version of Mad Max from Stranger Things but she's so good at it it's almost forgivable <laughs> I loved Ziggy so much I think she was probably one of my favorites um, I just love her in 1978. I thought she was, yeah, you know, she was like a Stephen King kid, sort of beaten up, pushed aside. Everyone hates her. Um, nobody's listening to her. I've noticed a lot in, in Stephen King books, you know, everything from Jake in The Dark Tower to Danny in The Shining or The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. They might be young, but it's almost like they've grown up so quickly that they have the knowledge and the 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 wisdom of a 20 year old 
Yeah. Well, she's she's a product of um, shady side, so she will have seen mm. all kinds of crap going on. So it it would have toughened her up. And I love the fact that so in in 1994 we have the love story between Sam and Dina, and then in 1978 that sort of um, flipped so that we have a sisterly love story instead. And it's you see the way that they've both reacted to shady side. Ziggy has become um, very self-possessed, very um, sort of uh, hard, I guess. Whereas um, Cindy is just trying to get out and her, her best way of getting out is to sort of conform to the Sunnyvale image of what a young woman should be. Yes, exactly. So they are like chalk and cheese or oil and water because they don't get on because of those attributes. But there also is the love story between yeah. Ziggy and Nick. And that's almost forbidden fruit as well because he's a camp leader and she's mm. one of the campers. They've they've got to keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when when they're in the mess hall and Nick's going to go out and do good, like his name, he wants to protect Ziggy and he sort of holds her face and mm. there's a couple of looks like, what are you doing? What's going on there? Do you think Nick knew about the mm. the 1666 Pact with the Devil legacy at that point, or does that come later in his life? Well, because you see in the montage in 1666 when he is at the altar and he looks just mm. like he does in 1978. So it's implied that actually he's the reason Tommy goes on the rampage. Um, so yeah, I feel like he does. And also he covers everything yeah. up at the end. When the police says what happened, he kind of says... What a shame. Oh, that kid went crazy. <sighs> Why have the good-looking ones got to be the bad ones? I know. You really want him to be the good guy, but he isn't. It's a question. <laughs> 1978 is, is flashback, right? They At the end of 1994, or the beginning of, of 78, they go and find this woman who is reported to have survived. And she recounts the tale from 1978 and then when they cut forward after we've seen um the the attack on cindy and ziggy one of the kid goes Mm. you're ziggy what tense did she tell this story (laughs) in that they didn't know that she was the sister did she tell it from a complete narrator's point of view <laughs> she must she must have told it third person yeah. narrator where she's saying ziggy then ran to the cabin not i ran to the yeah cabin. why did she do that all to serve <laughs> so dramatic of her yeah. it's such a dramatic ploy all isn't the way it? through this four-hour retelling she must be thinking <laughs> i've got them now i'm gonna do the big reveal here we go yeah and then my sister I'm died because she starts off saying <laughs> You know, this photo was from whatever it was. I think it was the 10th of July. Was it 10th of July? 12th, 12th of July, of July yeah. I remember posting about it on Twitter saying, never forget, never forget. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then she said, one week after this photo, my sister was my dead. Sister was dead. And then she goes into the third person tense. <laughs> Ziggy is running through the woods, <laughs> running away from some bullies. <laughs> She's by the hanging tree. She always loved that tree. I mean, she is a bit... Um, hanging on to her sanity I think I love her introduction as an adult so much it's so back to the future you know she's in a house full of clocks it is but I don't understand why she's got all these why she got all these reminders I think 
it's the it's the like the post final girl thing where what happens to a final girl after she survives does she end up killed in the way that she's killed in the opening of friday the 13th part mm-hmm. two or does she end up like sydney in scream three living in the wilderness um only literally phoning in um to like a crisis center for women and with ziggy she has in order to remove any kind of um surprise or ambiguity or anything to her day she set up this ridiculously timed routine so she has alarms that go off telling her to feed major tom the dog (laughs) she has alarm telling her to like check the locks and it's sort of like that that's who she's become is is someone who's obsessed with keeping her day and basically reliving the same day over and over again so that there's no um room for error there's no room for her to die maybe it's a side effect of ptsd maybe it's a it's a control mechanism oh absolutely did you see the way her sister died it's really really horrific yeah, so gruesome it is, and that's that's the most i mean they don't hold back on the violence in in this series no. not at all and you know seeing an axe plunge into someone's chest both of them and you know knives repeatedly it's really it's really not for kids is it no, I know. And I remember when I was speaking to Lee Janiak about the the tone of the films, um, I asked her how similar they were to Goosebumps because the Goosebumps movie was very much aimed at teenagers, like young teenagers. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the scares were very much um, boo scares, silly kind of like monster movie things. And she was like, yeah, we're rated R. And then when I watched it, I was like, yeah, you were not kidding. Like the bread <laughs> slicer thing. That was so cool. <laughs> Oh my god! So fucking cool. That's the coolest death in the whole film. Yeah, Lee Janiak said, "I don't know if this is gonna. I don't know if we can do this because I don't believe that actually someone could get cut up by a bread cutter like this." And so her production guy or her prop guy or whatever threw a um, a watermelon through <laughs> it, and it just cut it up perfectly. Oh, wow! So she was like, "Okay, it stays." But then, no, I heard she still didn't believe. So they got one of the production assistants and put his head through it. never forget the guy she hated never forget hashtag never forget nameless production assistant (laughs) r.i.p fred from lighting um yeah never stand in my light again why was nurse lane in cahoots with the witch or that's how i read it was nurse lane in cahoots with the witch why did nurse lane know that tommy was next um that's what I didn't understand. And actually, it's not really, it's really unclear. And even, so right, okay, let's go back. I answered that question with, why in 1994 did all the killers want Sam? I think I understand why they want Sam, because Sam touched something in the red weed, didn't she? So Sam was mm. the one that was now suddenly connected to Sarah Fear. And maybe the visions would would reveal, if the visions were strong enough, it would reveal the truth and therefore undermine Nick Good's power. So I understand why mm. I understand why the killers are being used by the devil power to kill to go after Sam. What I don't understand is why were the killers, or why was that that boy enlisted to kill? Maya Hawk at the beginning mm. and why would the, any of the other killers enlisted to kill people 
you know, all these serial killers that we see, the guy with the bad perm, the girl with the switchblade, the fucking creepy mm. child with the creepy child mask with the baseball bat. Oh, Billy Butcher. Yeah. Why were yeah. any of them enlisted to kill people? Because I get if someone, you know, if someone has the visions and understands the history and the secret, yes, you know, Nick Good would harness the power to send them after them. But why these other people? So why does Nurse Lane understand that Tommy is next? Mm. Why has she seen the wall and, and gone, oh, I know what's going on. Instead of actually doing something about it, I will just act crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So she must have seen the wall that said, Tommy, what's his face? Um, Because that's the only reason she would actually know. But yeah, I think that some of the sort of world building mythology doesn't quite line Mm. up. Because so I get why the, the killers are sort of like are doing their stuff it's it's a blood sacrifice it's sort of like it's weeding out the numbers in shady side it's it's keeping shady side down gripped by fear um f-e-a-r not (laughs) f-i-e-r make a choice people (laughs) so nick good is sort of like cherry picking one person every couple of years who goes on a killing spree um fine i get that but then i didn't really understand why if he'd already picked sam to be the next killer very quickly after he'd picked Ryan. Yeah. Like the um, next day. Why did she take, yeah, why did she take so long to sort of devolve into sort of like a rabid wannabe killer? Um, and then why did the other killers want to get her? I just, I didn't really see how that linked up. I'm not sure it did. If anyone knows, please write in. Answers on the postcard. <laughs> I know. Yes, please. Joshua and Robert at Fear Street, Minnesota, uh, 972116 is our zip code. <laughs> I have a question about something in 1994, because obviously we've talked about the diversity angle and how it really celebrates. I'm sorry, I wasn't alive then. Um, you were alive in 1994. No, no, I was born in 1996. I'm the same age as Tom Daly. <laughs> Well, regardless, just from watching the film, what was going on with Betty? Oh, yeah, what was going on there? <laughs> I forgot about her or him. What was going on? You know, that that's... I didn't really understand what they were trying to say with that. Is that like an outside... I mean, it, it kind of goes contrary to what I was saying about the whole um, sort of progressive nature of mm. the, the characterization. you know, how these the two lesbians are being portrayed as just inconsequentially lesbian and the the gender bi kid. But then we've got, like, the biggest queenie stereotype. You know, he's not even... Mm. He's not even happy enough with his own name. He has to give it a bit of a... A a a queenie feminine flair. So I don't know. Maybe they've given with one hand and been a bit ignorant with the other... They want that that funny. I don't know. It 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 does seem mm. to run contrary, but it's not that offensive. <laughs> and they're not saying he's an idiot because <laughs> he does get stabbed in well, the face. Well, because he's um, neck, doesn't he? Yeah, he's Kate's contact for drugs. I think because oh. she goes in and he's like, "I'm not giving you more drugs or something." So he's like, he's quite a shady character. Shady he's wearing nail varnish. Um, 
and I th- is he got I think he's wearing makeup as well. So he's kind of like the real old school Silence of the Lambs kind of um, version of being a cross dresser, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But... Maybe that does connect back to fifties and sixties, and maybe part four. Mm. You know, because there's clearly going to be a part four because there's some hands grabbing the book at the end of part three, <laughs> and I really, which has been left there by the police. Yeah, <laughs> I really do hope there is a part four, but maybe part four will connect to other eras of of horror maybe they'll connect to yeah. the universal period and then up to hitchcock and maybe there'll be one now maybe there'll be an elevated fear street horror mm. oh god can you imagine um i would definitely like to see them uh lee janiak she's talked about when she went into interview for the the job she talked about wanting to do like a, a sort of an expanded universe type thing um so they've set up they've set the world we have this world where the devil lives kind of thing and there's so many things they could do and i think they've kind of done the slasher thing you know obviously they've they've done it a a different kind of slasher they've done a slasher with various other things kind of attached to the side but they could do um monster movies they could do haunted house type things there's so many different sort of subgenres within horror that they could play around with and have a really good time with. Like American Horror Story, I guess. Yeah, um, the playground is huge. Yeah. there's and Now they're on Netflix, because originally it was meant to be 20th Century Fox. Um, when, when they were first greenlit, it was Fox, and they were going to release them over a period of three months in cinemas. Oh. But then COVID happened, and the, the rights lapsed, and Netflix kind of swooped in and picked them up instead. So now they're with Netflix. I think it's the perfect place for it. Yeah, like I was, I was going to say, do you think it would have worked if they had released the three films over three months rather than three weeks and in the cinema? Like, would people have gone? During COVID, no. But I think having the Netflix well, yeah. name gives it this, this street smart coolness because it's on the same platform as Stranger Things and Sex mm-hmm. Education. You know, Netflix have really... You know, their biggest hits seem to be aimed at nostalgia of our generation's childhood, but aimed at people who are, you know, 20 years younger than us. Yeah, I think it it definitely gives the franchise a kind of a, a street cred that maybe it wouldn't have had in cinemas, maybe. You know, sort of, I guess the Happy Death Day crowd would have turned out, but I'm not sure if... How successful is sort of popcorn horror like this in, like not counting the pandemic, but just generally speaking, mm. how successful is popcorn horror now? I don't know. Well, Blumhouse seems to do pretty well, but yeah. I think there's something to be said for a film set in 1994, because ostensibly the whole thing is set in 1994 and 78 and mm. 1666 are flashbacks. Yeah. yeah, one's a one's a flashback story told in an unknown tent, and the other one is <laughs> another one is an hour long vision um, that gives a lot of information, yeah. not even connected to the character by which point of view we are seeing the visions from, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that which seems to be all encompassing, um, but there's something to be said yeah. for a film that's said in 1994, going straight to inverted commas video, and it opens in a video shop. Mm. Yeah. So it, for me, it ties in a comic book shop. For me, it ties in brilliantly 
and I miss going to video shops. It was the only time I ever got any real cardio walking up and down the aisles of Blockbuster Video trying to work out <laughs> what do I want to watch. Did you not go to the pop-up shop that they did when the films came out? No, I missed them. Where were they? Oh, it was so cool. It was in, obviously it was in Shoreditch because, you know, it's that kind of market. Um, and they did a, a pop-up shop when the films were out. There was, you know, rows of videos, which was just, I was transported back <laughs> to being... 14 15 even like 20 i think we had the video shops stood around then um they had a they had a toilet that was like the camp nightwing toilet and there was like a creepy person underneath the loo with a creepy hand coming out of the toilet right we need to talk about this toilet we need to talk about okay. the toilet <laughs> the latrine 1978 had flushing toilets why are these campers expected to basically shit into a cave shit in a hole through a hole yeah that's not sanitary <laughs> the, the stench must have been horrendous but why are they okay with this why are they not saying wow why don't we have running toilets it's almost 1980 <laughs> well maybe that's what they were like you know they were these these camps were sort of run on a shoestring there were they weren't sort of big money-making schemes. They were just somewhere to send your kids to get them out of your hair during the summer holidays. But shitting into I think a that... hole down a cave, you could, you could, yeah, you could release, and then listen out. There would be a pause, <laughs> and then you would hear an impact. <laughs> and also, poor Sadie Sink, um, Ziggy, having to shove her entire face <laughs> through that hole in the. What, the girls having to try and climb up a wall of shit? I know. You stink of shit. It's like the worst task on I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here. (laughs) Crawling through 400 kids' shit just to get a star so they can have rice for dinner. Maybe it's part of the devil's plan, because that big bulging kind of like devil um, organic thing in the bottom of the the cave, maybe that's what it eats when it's not eating souls. It just eats up detritus well weirdly that's quite biblical you know the 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 shit pits of golgotha all the shit from the people (laughs) who were crucified you know you would before Mm. you died you would defecate yourself you would evacuate your bowels not to be mistaken with evacuate the dance floor right you would evacuate your bowels (laughs) and all the the shit would mass into a, a, a a you know a bog not the bog from Labyrinth. Eternal stench. Yeah. What's it called in Labyrinth? It would have stench, though. The bog of eternal stench. I'm <laughs> uh, just so, I'm so tired trying to live up to your expectations. What are the rules <laughs> of the colour war? Couldn't work out what was going on. Um, is it like sardines? I don't know. Kind of they, a bit of like a sardines they thing. They had prisons, and the prison officers were horrible to the other team, weren't they? Sit down. Oh my god, that. What was that poor little nerd called with the glasses? He was like, would anybody like any snacks or refreshments or, you know, want to play a game? Or an axe to the face. (laughs) I know. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, we talk about it being really gory and stuff. They really... uh, Yes, they keep the actual killings of young teenagers off screen, but they don't live. No, they don't. No, and we often we see... Like, in two shots, in 78 and 66, we see dead bodies covered up on the steps of the the heart yeah the the church or what then became the mess Mm -hmm. hang on it's so hang on it's not like sardines it's more like 
Catch the Flag. What? Isn't it? Where... Isn't that a game that they play? Oh, there where is a flag kind of involved, isn't there? It? You've got to hold on to this flag. You're the most important boy, the most important team member. Axe to the face. <laughs> I do know. <laughs> it seems like a fun game. I feel like it's... Um, there's You can buy t-shirts of Colour War, and I just feel like that's oh, really asking for trouble. Oh, I would definitely wear that. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I would definitely wear that. Here's a question. How many yeah. different Irish accents did you count in 1666? Oh, at least three or a dirty tree, I would say. <laughs> Everyone was from different parts of Ireland. But actually, you know, people did say, oh, weren't the accents ridiculous? But I didn't really notice. I didn't really, I couldn't tell where any of them were supposed to be from. Ireland. And I actually quite enjoyed that it was sort of this pan, pan-Irish slash pan-American. You know, they've all, they've all immigrated. They're all confused about their identity. They don't know, you know, are they Irish? Are they American? They don't know. There was no American accent back then. Everyone spoke with the original accent that they brought over. It's not like they got to Port Authority and they went, ah, to be sure, I've just come from Ireland. And then they walk through and they go, okay, let's go get ourselves <laughs> a flat and a ranch. I'm now American. <laughs> Yeah, there was lots of lots of accents going on, but I didn't mind actually. I thought it was I was gripped enough by the story that it didn't really matter to no, me. I don't mind at all. I mean, in most American films, you can have a family and they've all got different American accents because they're all from different parts of America. Yeah. It's just you just you or just Canadian sometimes. It. Yeah, a boot. A boot. Um, here's here's something I couldn't work out. Mm. Why was Sarah Fear cursed? And why did Solomon make a pact with the devil? What's that reason? Sarah Fear isn't cursed. She, or if she is, she's almost like, it's like a curse of empowerment. Like she's empowering herself. And I love, love, love that moment when she is about to be hanged and she looks at Solomon and she just says to him, she says, the truth will be your curse. It will follow you for eternity. I will never let you go. And I just love that because this whole time, the whole time, <laughs> the this whole, whole time, time the whole time, um, you've you've completely bought into the fact that Seraphir is a witch. And so when 1666, the film rolls around, you're thinking, okay, how is she going to become a witch? How is she going to end up you know doing this awful thing and then gradually the story removes or uh sort of puts a fresh perspective on all of the stuff that we know about her curse which is she severed her right hand no she didn't good did that to her um she cursed the entire town well no she didn't actually she um she cursed good she said you know every you can you could live for a thousand years, but I'm always going to be there right behind you and I'm going to find a way to end this. And it takes 300 years for it to happen. And she's not a witch. Where does she get that power from, though? I think it's is it not just like the power of a woman scorned? You know, it's the power of injustice. It's it's the power of somebody who has never had any power has been hugely prejudiced against to the point of sort of being killed, being murdered. And I think it's it's that kind of what's that what's that um quote that's like that kind of rage echoes for eternity. What's that from? 
I feel like I watched something recently that said that. I don't know. It's that kind of thing. Is it? Maybe it's even Candyman. I think it's Candyman where they say that kind of rage or, or wrong kind of echoes for eternity. Which Candyman? <laughs> I think it's the first one, isn't it? The one with the dick. Um, I've got a sore throat. <laughs> Suck on a candy? But good. Good is... I don't know, because he doesn't seem to be struggling as much as anybody else. He's just sort of... He's just not happy with his lot, basically. Got good hair, a lovely beard. He's just not happy. Yeah, he's got lovely hair. Maybe he's got. He looks a bit like Jake Gyllenhaal. Maybe he's maybe he's got like a secret sexuality, and he's jealous that Sarah Fear and her friend, who looks very much like Sam, um, get to have a bit mm. of a, a frolic. Now, a point on that: if you were to go back to sixteen sixty six, the first thing that would hit you would be the stench, the stench yeah. of the farms the woodland everywhere people's body odor people's breath so if you're going down on someone oh that <laughs> whether you're going down on a boy or a girl that's not gonna be a pleasant experience so if anything well that was punishment enough he didn't have to then go and curse anyone or make a blood <laughs> make a blood pact or something but that thing you're saying about the the fury and the the injustice of you know not being listened to and and you know being um what was it you said (laughs) it's the injustice of it all that thing you said about the injustice of it all that's more thematic in the context of the story where does she get her power from that she's able to keep coming back well this is so is this why this franchise is basically about gay rage you know it's is there a power to to that kind of the gay rage aspect that she draws from you know she i know i mean and also less less sort of deep and whatever she's living in a time when um magical powers and stuff seem to exist you know like he's he's summoned the devil just like that so why can't she sort of summon something from herself or from the earth, you know, from the ground around her? Why can't she do that? I, I, I completely buy into that. Yeah, I can see that now. I can see that. <laughs> you know, I don't think it would happen now. <laughs> no, it would never happen now. <laughs> like, no, like now, nah, that's just silly. No. But 1666, I don't think it would happen. No. You're, living, you're living in a lawless, godless time. In, in 2021, we're all too, uh, we're far too woke. To allow any sort of magical power. Too busy on our phones. Too busy on our phones, yes. Far too busy on our phones. So did you... Okay, the reason you watched the entire franchise is because you wanted to get to 1666. So did it deliver when you finally got to it? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing that I, I like most about this 1666 is the reveal of the legend is obviously the big reveal Mm. of the overarching story is that nick good is not good it reminded me of from hell from hell the book not necessarily the the terrible movie that we did last series (laughs) the book is about the legend of jack the ripper and how we view it in modern times how we look back and and sort of connect dots where we want to connect dots but the truth is there was no the purported truth is there was no actual jack the ripper that we see it's just a legend that Mm. has been almost become a a conspiracy theory so i really really dug the the idea that 
the legend of Sarah Fear is just bullshit, and it's just there to stoke yeah. fear. I really liked. Yeah, Oregon it's gay story. panic. It's, it's yeah. kind of a gay panic. A hundred percent. I just liked how the dots were revealed and then connected, and they were different dots to mm. what we've been led to believe. Because up until then, it's all been yeah. very much, oh, there's a curse. The curse is going to get you. It's going to kill some kids. And if it was just that, <laughs> it would not be as enjoyable as it was. Because 19, because 1666 goes, yes, there's a curse. It's not the curse you thought it was. It's a different yeah. curse. And the curse you thought it was is not a good curse. <laughs> because it's a good curse. I think that I think that's what makes these films better than your average sort of nostalgia rinse horror film because it has its own philosophy and it has its own point that it wants to make you know like it's kind of saying it's easier for everybody to believe this woman was a witch than a woman who was hugely done wrong by murdered purely because a man said that she was a witch and you know it does it really effectively taps into that you know, the crucible is basically a, a gay crucible. It taps into that and says, she's not a witch, she's just gay. <laughs> you know? It's a gay Salem. Galem. Yeah, it's Galem. Galem. <laughs> Here's a question. Why did the neon paint at the end, why did that attract the ghouls? I didn't get the, I just didn't get the, the, the link there. I wasn't being able to connect the dots. Well, first they put Dina's blood in there. Oh, how very kiss kiss did that in the 70s with marvel they went to the printing press took some blood poured it into the paint and the comics were sold as this comic is printed with the blood of kiss no way yes way and there's a um, that is bonkers there's a comic book series called squadron supreme and when it was reprinted after the author died his ashes were sprinkled into the paint so it, the, his ashes, his actual being is in the physical reprinted graphic novel. Whoa. That's what I'm going to put that in my will right now. I want to do that. People will lose their shit nowadays. <laughs> How dare you force your masculinity onto me in the form of your blood and ashes in the, again, in the comic book. They're so inconsequential to my life. But how dare you? <laughs> cancelled. Hashtag cancelled. Did you, did, were you happy that we had a happy ending. Yeah, these things have to have a happy ending. They are, you know, they're morality tales. Nick Good can't mm. survive because then it's such a Debbie Downer. These things, <laughs> it, it's built into the, the structure. You have to have a happy ending, but you have the little tag at the end where it goes, mm. oh, it's happy, but wait, there's a pair of hands taking that burnt book. Whose hands are those? I think that they, the music choices throughout the franchise, I think 1994 had just a few too many needle drops in the first 20 minutes. But in, in all, I think the, the songs are great. And particularly whatever that song was that they played over the, the closing, when it kind of like lifts up from the forest and moves towards the mall and goes down into the caverns again. And I just don't brilliant. know which it's song so that good. is, but... They used two versions of The Man Who Wasn't There, David Bowie, in 78. And in 1994, they used the Nirvana 
cover version. I think that is and it was so that kind of so thing. brilliant to connect those two times yeah. and also establish the times. Yeah, I love love that kind of stuff, and I think that's why 1978 um, on the first watch was my favorite because it felt like such a coherent it felt more of a standalone weirdly even though it was developing all the mythology um, of the franchise I felt like stylistically and sort of like in the way it was packaged it just felt like more complete than the first film and it's from and it's from things like the echoing of that song at the beginning and the end and um, yeah just I loved it so clever (laughs) and I loved it. Why did you ask me to watch Scream before I rewatched all of these? <laughs> Partly to make you watch Scream. You know? <laughs> but just because I wondered if if you hadn't seen Scream, I wondered how much of the how many of the references in 1994 you actually would pick up on because there are tons. Um, no, I, I, like I, I've opening. seen Scream and I, I I got it. I understood that the the Maya Hawke section at the start of 19, 1994 was a complete riff of the Drew Barrymore cold open. But what mm. other references were there? Um, there's the things like the the shop grill doesn't close properly and that is just the, gar- the, like garage, the garage door yeah, and Scream. Yeah. With Rose McGowan, who, when I watched Scream the other night, I was like, she's, so, she's a baby. She must have been five, early 20s when she made it. <laughs> and also she's blonde, so she looks completely different to basically anything else she's ever done but what other references um there's the there? body being dragged down the hall by the noose which is basically the same as Ghostface running down the hall in scream going <laughs> scaring people okay um the music the music is by marco beltrami who did the scream uh score it was his first ever movie score oh, wow and um so this fear street one basically is the scream soundtrack but sort of like amped up and sort of fleshed out for more of a 21st century audience which killer do you want to see explored some more um which killer do i want to see the milkman was really creepy and billy butcher because you don't really know anything about billy butcher apart from you see him bashing in the head i think of his mother (laughs) in bed which is just horrific yeah i really want to see billy butcher's origin story just because it looks so creepy he's obviously a little boy yeah wearing a creepy little boy mask i'm just thinking that's that's creepy he must be really creepy already why does he need the mask and the baseball bat is so american (laughs) he's he's like baby michael myers isn't he he is yeah like at the end of the the cold open to to halloween where it's revealed to be michael in a a clown suit isn't it Holding the knife. Michael. Peter. Yeah. I don't need to see any more of Ruby Lane because I got so sick of hearing her sing that (laughs) bloody song. It's like, it was creepy for a while and then she just kept singing it. Yeah, it's like like when we were kids, there would always be a number one song in the summer that just wouldn't bugger off like Mumbo number five. (laughs) Are we going to do a quiz? Go on then, quiz me. I've got 13 questions. 13? What the fuck is this Beat the Chaser? (laughs) I just want to make really sure that you are uh, paying attention. Okay. What is the name of the book that saves Maya Hawke from being stabbed at the start of the film? 
Here's a clue. It's the same one that is strapped to Dina's front in the climax of the third film. Oh, I can't remember, but it's the design is basically Fear Street or Point the Horror from the 90s. It's that kind of whimsical, yeah. painted, gothic-ness. What's the book called? It's called The First Evil. And that's actually a bit of a mean one because I had to really pause the film because you see it for like half a second. <laughs> I would never have got that. Okay, fine. Uh, how many people died in the mall massacre? It's reported during the opening credits of the movie. Oh, um, well, there's Maya Hawk, there's Ryan. Um, there's another person who doesn't she stumble upon. And then maybe there's the two policemen. Yeah. So five. It's close, but it's actually eight. Eight? Who were the other people? I don't think you see them. I think that all happens off screen. Right, okay. Off screen. Yeah. So uh, off screen. Are you ready for question three? I am now. Okay. What kind of cushion does Dina have on her bed? A soft one. <laughs> nice comfy cushion. I'm going to need more than that, I'm afraid. What kind of cushion? An old it's one? Very, it's a very recognisable thing i don't know it's you see it a lot throughout 1994 i don't listen oh i don't know i i wasn't doing cushion watch i was doing wig watch in 1666 <laughs> a lot <laughs> wig watch and stuck on beard watch <laughs> everyone had a beard or a, or a wig they it's almost like the cast went to the, the wardrobe and went let's have fun i'm gonna wear a wig in this one <laughs> um so no i wasn't doing i wasn't doing cushion watch Okay, well, it's a smiley yellow face, like an emoticon. Oh, okay, like in um, yeah, like in Watchmen. Question four. Exactly. Question four. Um, actually, AOL chat that really brought back some memories because oh, that's yeah. how <laughs> you and I met. Yeah, on AOL, AOL chat. chat. Yeah, we've never met in yeah, the real back world. in the day. We've only ever met in <laughs> internet forums. That like bulu, bulu. Of getting a message. Bloop. Just. Bloop. What is Josh's AOL chat name? Oh, isn't it like um, Princess Monarchy or something? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, he's chatting to master. Queen of Darkness. <laughs> yeah. What's his like? I don't know. Do we ever find out who that is? Yeah, I, I think it's the girl that, isn't it the girl that writes on his cast at the end of Part oh. 1994 part two yeah of course that's what i read in i that. was waiting for that yeah but she wrote it in Do such a way that he would never be able to read it right side up <laughs> you had to wait till it came off and by which time she was long gone and the the, the marker pen would have rubbed off i don't know what his don't uh, know i don't know what his username was all right it was horrible eight islands Horrible silence with an eight randomly in there. Don't know why. Is that a reference to something? Horrible eight islands. I don't know. Horrible, Horrible silence. Silence. Don't know. Question five. What kind of Star Wars figurine does Josh have on the shelf above his desk? Does he have Bib Fortuna? Uh, possibly. I didn't see that one. <laughs> oh, does he have an eighty eighty? Uh, don't know, but I didn't see that one either. <laughs> Which one's Josh again? Which one's Josh? <laughs> The nerd in the basement. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Does he have a Yoda? No. Oh, no, does he have a Lando? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see a Star I'm Wars cutting figure. you off. It's a Stormtrooper. <laughs> oh, right, okay. 
which is strange because right. by 1994 no one gave a shit about star wars it was gone it'd be three yeah. years before people gave a shit about star wars again because of the the prequel yeah no 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 because of the re-releases the special editions oh yeah yeah i did see those in cinema as a kid yeah god i went to see empire strikes back Anyway, are you ready for another one? Where does C. Berman hide Major Tom at the start of the film when someone's breaking into her house? In the cupboard that would be, well, very similar to the cupboard in Solomon's hovel that leads down to the caves. Ah. I mean, it is in the closet. It's more like a Halloween closet than a a, a Sheriff Good closet. But hooray, ah, okay. you got one right. Yay. <laughs> so that's nine I've got right so far. Yeah, that's not <laughs> correct at all. What drugs does Alice the drug chick in 1978, what does she want to get from Nurse Lane? Two types of drugs she mentions. PCP and BBC. <laughs> Close. Is it Xanax or something? No cigar. No, it's not Xanax. I give in. I give in. They're kind of, they're kind of slang. Yellow jackets and red birds. What? That's not drugs. <laughs> I know. Okay, this one you'll definitely get. I feel I feel sure of this. Okay. What colour shirts do the shady siders wear in the colour war? Yellow. Yellow? Yellow? <laughs> no. What? Red? <gasps> Blue? Oh my god. <laughs> this is the easiest question in all of it. I'm colourblind. <laughs> You'd have to be not to realise it's blue. Blue. Yeah. Yeah, it's blue. I knew that. Uh, what number cabin is Ziggy staying in? Oh, 66? No. Way 69. off. 69? <laughs> 13? No. I don't know. Uh, cabin 5. Oh, they could have had some fun with that. It could have been 66 and they would have yeah. tied in. I kind of like how arbitrary it is. Mm. All right, we're moving into the final movie now. Okay. I don't have any questions from 1666, like the actual period, because there's nothing really in there that's question-worthy. Um, no, I've got one. I, I lie, I've got one. <laughs> what is the first name carved into the stone by Solomon Good? Oh, it's the name of the preacher, but I can't remember his name. It is the, pe- it is the preacher, it is the pastor. Pastor. And the preacher. His name is Cyrus Miller. Wow. Ring any bells? No, no bells. No Fine. bells. All right. How many killers are trapped in the mall shops at the end? Isn't it five? There's Billy Butcher. There's the Milkman. There's Tommy. Oh, trapped in the shops. Maybe it's just three. Because Misty Switchblade is out and about. And Amy's running about. I think it's three. Mm. Four, four, because you've got the guy with the weird anteater mask on. <laughs> All right, you can have that. It's four. You didn't name the right ones, but I'll give you who it was. It was Skull Mask, Nightwing, Milkman, and the Grifter. I don't know why he's called the Grifter, but that's what he's called. Nightwing is Tommy, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, well, I call him Tommy. Right, you've got two left. What does Ziggy say to Sheriff Good? before she dumps the neon blood on him from the bucket. Oh, is this on like Tag You're It or something? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> but she says it in third, Brilliant. third right. person tense. She goes, 
Ziggy says. Yeah. Tag, you're it. <laughs> I'm Ziggy. Did you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even Nick Good goes, oh, you're the sister. You're Ziggy. <laughs> uh, what song do Dina and Sam dance to at the very end? Industry Baby by Lil Nas X. <laughs> the Hokey Cokey? I'm not sure. That would be slightly anach- Is it anachronistic? Anachronistic, yeah. It's not that. Hava Nagila Hava? The clue is, the clue is that Dina says at the start we should be hanging out, dance, uh, making out and listening to this band. Oh, is it Come Out and Play by The Offspring? <laughs> no. no well that does play, was that, that a does, genuine guess well yeah because i mean that does play at one point during the uh during the film oh okay because it's off their smash album which came out in 1994 um i don't know is it oh is it um is it, i think we're alone now but not the tiffany version the original version no they, that played as well but that would have been great <laughs> i don't know who it is it's gigantic by the pixies oh yeah. Never heard of it. Because that's what she wants, is just for them to be able to hang out, make out, and listen to the Pixies. There's your quiz. You got about two. You got one, two. Somehow you didn't get blue, which I'm just... That's just blowing my mind. I can't see blue. You got a three out of 13. Well done, Rob. That's one per film. That's Valiant good enough effort. for me. That's good enough for me. <laughs> I'm the fair street Well, king. you didn't get any of the 1994 questions. <laughs> Why well, wasn't alive then? Oh, well, you can use that as much as you want. It doesn't fly. That was Fear Street Trilogy, directed by Lee Janiak. I enjoyed that. Really did enjoy that. Yeah. Give us a clue what's coming up next. Uh, We're heading into a new decade. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Come let us know what you thought of the Fear Street Trilogy. Happy Halloween as well. Happy Halloween. We're off to the shady side more than until next time I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Cut. A long, a long, long time ago. Oh